this, uh, this holiday season, this Christmas season, we're going to be doing a series called A Blockbuster Christmas. And uh, each Sunday we're going to be looking at one of our Christmas favorites and watching a clip and, and trying to discover what we can learn um, about Jesus, about the holidays, about God's love for us and all that good stuff. Um, today the series is The Day That Changed Everything. It's The Day That Changed Everything. I mean, Santa's coming! I love this movie, Elf. It is my favorite holiday movie. Absolutely love it. I mean, just see the joy on his face. I mean, Santa's about to be here. We got to get this place ready. There are days in our lives that absolutely change everything. And we know that after we experience them, we're never going to be the same. For me, one of those days was when uh, shortly after I graduated college, um, I was looking for ministry opportunities, and I knew, um, being that if I wanted to be a pastor in the Church of God movement that, that we are affiliated with, um, that, that I was not going to be able to be a pastor in my hometown of Dallas, Texas, because there was one church that had a pastor, and their senior pastor and their youth pastor were two of my really good friends and my uncle and one of my best friends. And so I knew that if I was going to be a pastor in this movement, I was going to be moving away from the rest of my family. And let me tell you, I was the very first person in my family to move away. It's crazy, isn't it? All my aunts and uncles lived within 10 miles of each other. All my cousins I grew up with every single Sunday going to church and having lunch and, you know, all the holidays. And it was never going to be the same. And all of my family blamed me for breaking the dam of everybody leaving shortly after I graduated college. Because after I left, all my other cousins were like, oh, we can do this? We don't have to live near our family. So they're in Arkansas and California and all over the place. And everybody points their finger at this guy. He did it. He caused all the... I knew my life was going to be forever different because of my job. Um, for some, it's a wedding. It's a wedding. I got married. And I thought my life was going to change three years ago. But I had no clue all the changes it was going to be. That were going to be happening. And one of the big things that people don't really prepare you for that's going to change after you get married is learning how to sleep with another person in bed. I was 37 years old when we got married. And all of a sudden, now that we're married, we're sleeping in the same bed. And that's really hard to do when you've been sleeping by yourself. I mean, the whole cuddle factor, I mean, I had no clue. You know, what cuddling was about in bed and how hot it gets. And then eventually you have to look at each other and just say, Ugh, can we get like two sets of sheets in the bed? You know, you have yours. Could you start stealing things and fighting back and forth? And then you enter a pregnancy into this process of sleeping and it really turns into a whole nother monster. I mean, now, can I share this? Okay. <laughs> I should have previewed this before. We don't even sleep like head to head and we sleep head to toe now. I mean, we're in a queen size bed and it's like we can't even do the whole, you know, sleeping, cuddling thing. So we just start out head to toe. She takes one side of the bed, I take the other. And then about, about midnight or one in the morning, I'll roll over and my wife is gone. She's on the couch because that's the only peaceful sleep she can find in the house. I didn't know that my life would so drastically change after I got married. One of those big changes are your in-laws, right? My very first Thanksgiving with Haley's family, there are a few non-negotiables on Thanksgiving when you grew up in Dallas. It's fried turkey, it is pecan pie, 
and it's the Dallas Cowboys. And I went to somebody's house on my first Thanksgiving with Haley's family. Uncle Howard, right? Uncle Howard. And we didn't have fried turkey. We had baked turkey. I mean, who even does that, right? Oven roasted turkey. And we didn't have pecan pie. We had lots of pumpkin. And this man had the audacity to turn the Cowboy game off at halftime because Kansas State was playing a pointless basketball game. And I looked at my wife and I said, what just happened? She said, I don't know. I'll go figure it out. And so she got up and she went to her aunt. She's like, my my husband may be leaving me. He turned off the Cowboy game. What do we do? And so she found a TV like back in one of the back rooms. And literally, I watched the Dallas Cowboy game pretty much all by myself in the back room. Who knew that this thing called in-laws so drastically changed? And I don't even want to get stuck. She can tell so much more about my in-laws. My in-laws are crazy. I mean, her in-laws are crazy, talking about my family. So it's not like I can just pick on her. She's got lots of material and lots of ammo if you want to ask her after the service is over. But there are days we're having a baby, January 11th. And I've been told a few times that that's a day that changes your life forever. Right? Forever your life is changed. There are days. It's the loss of a loved one. There are days that change everything. Well, today, we're talking about a day that changed absolutely everything. And it was such a day that changed the world that they actually changed the way they tell time based on this one day. It's on this day that Christ was born that they entered this idea of B.C. and A.D. B.C. stands for before Christ. A.D. stands for Anno Domini in the year of our Lord. So there are two days that change everything. Well, this is what the story says. If you pull out your notes... In Luke chapter 1, verse 30 to 33, says this. It says, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You'll conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you you will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. John writes it this way in 1.14. He says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father full of grace and truth. This day, this one day that changed everything, this day is an amazing act of love. When God became one of us to reveal his nature to us, to let us know that he gets us, to bridge the gap between heaven and earth, this is the day that changed everything. I mean, think about Mary and Joseph for a moment. Think about how their worlds were rocked upside down 
But they're going to be the parents of the Messiah. Think about the Jews and how it changed them. That, that this God, this Messiah that they've been waiting for is now here. Think about how it changed the world, access to God. You see, that day changed. And here's a few things that it changed for us. And the first thing is this. If you're taking notes, it says that day changed the way we understand God. It changed the way we understand God. You know, I love getting to know people. You know, introducing myself, you know, family or whoever. You know, and, and somebody comes in and says, tell me a little bit about you. I mean, what do you say? You know, somebody says, Jared, hey, tell me a little bit. Some of the first things that come out of my mouth is, well, yeah, I really like to eat cheese. I like cheese and I like steak. Um, I like the Dallas Cowboys. I mean, that's two. What else do you need other than cheese steak and the Dallas Cowboys? I mean, that's, and you put those two things together. A cheese steak? Are you kidding me? All those things. That's stuff that you need to know about me. I hate cilantro with a passion. Get it away. I don't want it in anything. I love the outdoors, hunting and fishing and just being outside. All that stuff I love. Tell them about your family, where you grew up, what, who, what made you, who you were, being with my grandpa's little buddy. I just tell them all that stuff. You dig a little deeper. You say, well, what are you passionate about? What do you, what do you, what do you love? Well, the truth is, to find out what a person is passionate about, you can't really ask them as much as you watch them. What is their life about? How do they spend their time? What's important to them? Have you ever had someone ask you, tell me about God? How do you describe God to a person? If you think about it, it can be really, really hard to do. Anybody ever felt like, how do you, how do you describe God? I mean, he's, he's bigger than we can imagine. He's more powerful than we can ever comprehend. He's, I mean, I mean there's, there's just so much to grab. Our, and we can't just like say, hey, you know, I'm God, nice to meet you. And just like you know, introduce them like we had introduced two different people. We can't really, hey, hey, Dan, this is God. God, this is Dan. We can't really do that. So how do we, how do we, how do we explain God? How do we understand him? How do we figure out what God is passionate about? How do we figure out what God's character is like? How do we discover what he loves? How do we know all of that? Well, simply we look at Jesus. Colossians 1.15, Paul writes this. He says, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. I mean, I love that. He said, Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. What we can't see in heaven, we can see here in the flesh in Jesus. You want to know what God is like? You look at the life of Jesus. Hebrews 1.3 says, The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So you want to know what God's passionate about? Look at Jesus. What was Jesus passionate about? You want to know what God's priorities are in this world? Then you look at Jesus and you discover what was he, what was, what was, what were his priorities? You want to know how God feels about people? Then you look at Jesus and you see how he felt about people and the love and the grace and the mercy that he showed. You want to know what captures his heart and how he loves this world? You look at Jesus. You see, God became flesh and he wrecked their world. He wrecks ours. 
He completely flips it upside down. You see, that day changed the way we understand God. Not only that, it changed the way we're made right by God. I got to thinking about this this week. It would have been pretty gross to be a pastor or a priest at the Old Testament. And you think about it, it's, it's actually pretty nasty. They're more of like a butcher than they are a pastor. I mean, they have all these sacrifices. I mean, they're sacrificing stuff all the time. Bulls and sheep and lambs and goats and birds. I mean, it's absolutely disgusting. Look, I've wanted to kill a junior high kid a time or two in my ministry, but I've never pulled it off. Well, they've never found his body, but I've never, I've never, I've never done it. But it was absolutely disgusting if you think about what life was like for them in the Old Testament. These guys, they had to do it every single day. Gross and exhausting. But that was the Jewish system. The Jewish system in the Old Testament, if you had sin in your life, or if you were sinful, not even if, but because you were, you had certain sacrifices that you had to do at certain times of the year just to make you right with God. Certain animals for certain sins at certain times to make yourself right with the Father. But Jesus changed all of that. Look at the scripture in your notes. Matthew one twenty one. It says, she'll give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus. Because he will save people from their sins. He will save people from their sins. Hebrews 7.27 says, Unlike those other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices every day. Thank goodness. They did this for their own sins first and then for the sins of other people. But Jesus did this once and for all for when he offered himself as a sacrifice for the people's sins. I love that. Once and for all. Your sins are covered. All of them. Forgiven. Every single one, if you will just ask. Did you say, Jared? Jared, you you don't know what I've done. You don't know how many times I've done it. It doesn't matter what you've done or how many times or whatever sin it may be that you're ashamed of. It does not matter. God forgives. It's over. It's cleansed. It's forgiven. God's grace and His mercy and His forgiveness is for all. Look at this text, Romans 10, 9. It says, If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. There are no more sacrifices. There's no more list of rules. The do's and don'ts are done. It's just Jesus. Being good is not about salvation anymore. Salvation is about Jesus. Being good is about honoring the sacrifice of God and showing love to God, but it's not about grace. You see, that was free. That was from God. See, it changed the way that we're made right with God. You see, that day, it changed the way we interact with God. I mean, think about God, how he interacted with his people in the Old Testament for a moment. I mean, sometimes I think, man, it would have been so cool to be alive in the Old Testament. Well, the fact that I'd probably been in a war and killed at some point, other than that, it would have been so cool to be one of the Israelites coming out of Egypt, right? And to see this pillar of fire at night representing God's presence in this pillar of, 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 of clouds during the day. I mean, that would have been rad. 
to see the water part when Moses' staff struck the ground and dry and, you know, and the, the, the Red Sea and walking around. That would have been amazing to see God show off like that. To see the mountain covered in God's glory and Moses going to the top and, and Elijah, you know, burning the altar and seeing all those. I mean, that would have been incredible. I think sometimes it would have been so much easier to believe if I could see that kind of stuff today. But if you really think about it, if you read his scriptures, and if you understand, you see that stuff, that stuff happened over generations. You see, God didn't speak to everyone every day. He'd show up at different times to different people. Sometimes generations would go by with nothing being heard from God. And sometimes, oftentimes, he would speak to one prophet. One message for one group of people in one moment. He wasn't speaking every day like he does today. From Malachi, the last book written in the Old Testament, did you know that, that there are 400 years that, that go between the book of Malachi and the angel declaring the birth of Jesus? 400 years of silence. 400 years of God not showing up, of God not speaking to his people. I mean, at that point, the Jewish leaders and the priests were getting a little freaked out. Where's God at? Why aren't any prophets? Why aren't we hearing from God? We haven't heard from him in a really long time. And then he shows up. The high priest. The high priest was the one that would go into the Holy of Holies and represented God's presence. And he was the only one that was allowed in there. And, it's, and one of the things that they would do is they would tie a rope around their ankles that just in case they walked into the Holy of Holies and weren't clean enough and weren't pure enough, because if they walked in without being clean, they would drop dead instantly. I mean, think about it. How many bodies had to pile up in there before one of them said, hey, I think I need to tie a rope at my ankle just in case. That's a pretty bad cleanup job, right? They tie a rope so that somebody could pull out his dead body if he wasn't pure enough to be in the presence of God. And then Jesus. Jesus changed everything. Look at the notes, Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. I love this. It's in the past. God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these days, in these last days, He has spoken to us. How? By His Son whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. See, you can speak directly to God. Your relationship with God isn't dependent upon your pastor, or your Sunday school teacher, or your small group leader. It's you and Jesus. James 1.5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, what should you do? It says, You should ask God. Right? That's what it says. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. I mean, what a beautiful promise. He says, if you need wisdom, then you ask. Because God gives to all people. Everyone. You see, Jesus keeps us focused on a relationship with God, not a religion. He keeps us focused on a relationship with God, not a religion. Here's the last thing. That day, 
It changed the things that really needed to be changed. You see, the Jews were waiting on a Messiah. And to them, the Messiah meant somebody rescuing them from Roman rule. I mean, they were oppressed people. They were in captivity. There were Romans living in Jerusalem telling Jews what to do. I mean, they were a dominated people. And this Messiah idea, they were thinking of this king come riding in you know, on a stallion with a sword in hand, leading them in revolt to free them from captivity. That was their idea of Messiah. They thought that he was going to lead a revolution, that the kingdom of God would be here on this earth, that there would be a palace, and this man would sit on his throne, and he would make political decisions for all of his people. And there would be people gathered around wanting a moment of his time. That's what the Jews thought the Messiah would bring. But it's not what they got. Luke 2.12 says, This will be a sign to you. You will find a what? A baby. Wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. I mean, he's not in the palace. This Messiah is not some political figure. I mean, even born to royalty. He's born in a barn and he's laying in a feed trough, and this is the coming Messiah. You see, Jesus, I mean, he changed the things that really needed to be changed. You see, sometimes we want God to change things. But, but God wants to change things that he has in mind, not ours. We say things like, God, change them. Change them. My spouse. They're driving me nuts. Change them, God. God says, nope, I'm changing you. I'm changing your ability to forgive. We say, God, my job, change my job. I want a new one. This is driving me bonkers. I can't stand these people. God says, no, I'm changing you. I'm changing your attitude about your job and the way you work for my glory and not yours. We say, God, change this situation. He says, no, I want to change your heart. I want, I want to change the way you think about it and how you pray. I want to change you. You see, that day changed the things that really needed to be changing in here. When I moved to Phoenix for the first time in 2005, I was working at a church on the north side of town as a youth pastor. And I was young. Being young and in ministry, sometimes that's a dangerous combination. <laughs> and um, I had this worship pastor, his name was Taylor. And uh, he had a buddy of his um, that ran the sound. Um, they were both in college, um, or maybe past college, or out of college, or dropped out of college. I don't remember. They were just older than the rest of the kids in my youth group. And um, this kid that was running sound started dating one of the girls in my youth group who was a junior in high school. And I was like, hmm. It's a bad idea, you know. And so I talked to him, and, and uh, the, the, the girl's mom just said, hey, I approve. He's a good guy. You know, just don't worry about it. Um, well, um, they made some poor choices in their relationship, and she ended up getting pregnant. And um, it was a scandal to me. It was a scandal. To me, it was... I instantly started thinking about all of like the little defensive things that I needed to do and the message that I needed to get out to protect 
myself from the situation of this girl getting pregnant in the youth group from a volunteer that was running the sound. This college kid getting a girl pregnant. That's, that's on me, right? So I started telling, I told my pastor, I heard it through the grapevine. They didn't come and tell me. They actually, I heard it before they had a chance to tell me. And so I went to my pastor and I told him, it's like, what do you do? What do I do? I don't understand what to do. And so I told my worship leader, I was like, dude, hey, this guy, he can't volunteer anymore. You know, the, he can't be involved in our youth ministry. He's going to be doing this stuff with these kids. And, you know, I started talking to a few of my volunteers and just saying, hey, if these kids start talking about this, we need to put out this fire. And all of these things that I'm doing are all about me and all about my image and all about putting out fires and all about making myself look good. And it was disgusting. Because I forgot about this little junior in high school girl whose life has just been flipped, turned upside down with a soon-to-be baby. And her mom called me. She said, Jared, I guess you know what happened. I was decided to play dumb. I mean, if you're going to dig a hole, why not like dig it all the way down? You know? So I just decided to play dumb. And I was like, oh, what are you talking about? She's like, no, 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 I know you know because you told so-and-so and you told so-and-so. Why are you lying? And I was all about protecting my image. It was all about protecting me. And I forgot about the people that needed love, that needed grace, that needed mercy, that needed acceptance, that needed peace, that needed a pastor to hold their hand through a very difficult stage in life. And I remember as all this blew up around me, and it was bad. And I deserved it. I mean, I really did. I was a young punk that deserved to get a couple fingers blown off. And I had to go to this mom, this girl, repent and apologize. And as I was processing with a pastor friend and a counselor, God began to reveal a lot of nasty places in my heart and life about being self-centered and about being about lying and about making other people's stuff about me. And God kept saying, you thought this was just about them, but this is all about you. You learning how to be a better person and how to love people through difficult moments. Like, no, there was a lot of stuff that they had to go through, but they needed me to go through with them and not just to protect my image. You see, this was about that. This needed change in this. And it was through that pain, and through that process that I became a better pastor. It's about change. You see, Christ came in an unexpected way. I put this in your notes. In an unexpected place and at an unexpected time to make unexpected changes. Open up your heart for God's unexpected changes in your life. See, what change may God be wanting to do in your life? You've been wanting a job change? Maybe God wants to do a heart change. You might even want a spouse change. God's saying, oh, I want to change you. You may want a situation change. 
God's saying, no, I, I want to change your identity and who you are in me. See, maybe God's been wanting to change something in you. Your heart, your attitude, your mindset. So this morning, we're going to end our service and taking communion together. I'm going to ask my two volunteers to did offering to go back and to prepare to take her, pass out the elements. And the elements are stacked cups on top of each other. And um, make sure you take both as they go by. But communion is a physical reminder that we do to honor the sacrifice that Jesus made for us so that we could be changed. So maybe this is a moment for you to to connect with God's heart, to listen to his voice, to allow him to work into your life.